And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I've been on vacation for a couple of weeks now, and I was out in the Pacific Northwest and had a chance to go around through a couple of different cities in uh, two different states, through Oregon and uh, up to Washington. And there's a connection to Disney here I wanted to share with you, and it was kind of interesting because I didn't expect this going in, that there was going to be any sort of real connection. But as I looked at it, I realized there really was. So let me start off by telling you that I'm wearing right now my new Oregon Ducks t-shirt that includes a picture of Donald in green. Remember that Paddles the Duck is the official mascot of the University of Oregon, and he's modeled after Donald Duck based on some licensing agreement and a court case uh, that was settled a few years ago. You can hear all about this on episode 14 if you go back in the archives and you check it out. I talk about the history of this and how it all came to be. It's kind of interesting, but I've got the shirt on now because I uh, had a chance to visit over by the University of Oregon and pick myself up a shirt. It's kind of fun. So there's the first Disney connection I had while I was out here. The other Disney connection has to do with the city of Seattle. Now, Seattle is really a pretty interesting city. If you've never been there, it's really pretty fascinating and well worth a visit. I know some of my listeners are from the Seattle area, or at least the, uh, the West Coast, and have some familiarity with it. But here was the interesting thing. As I went around through the city of Seattle and I was looking at how the city is laid out, some of the things that went into the design of the city, even going back to the early 1900s and even before that, when some of the settlers were there doing logging, they had some very clever ideas for how to establish the city, set up different districts for different things, and do some things that were very clever so that they could separate out parts of the city for recreational use, part for housing, part for, well, brothels and bars, and do some different things to, uh, to ensure that they got the most out of those cities and kind of kept them separate and distinct. And then as the city grew into the 20th and now the 21st century, it kind of grew in a sort of a planned and managed way. So there's a lot of things that are going on in the city that I think really kind of embody what Walt Disney had in mind for something that he was thinking about as the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. You have people that live and work in a community and actually support some of the things that are going on there. And among some of the cool things that I noticed was they have a light rail that takes you from one part of the city to another. If you land at, say, the airport down by the Seattle Tacoma Airport and you want to go up to Seattle, you can take the light rail all the way up to the city of Seattle. It's not expensive, it's pretty convenient and pretty quick, and um, it's very efficient. And one of the other things I noticed in the city was that there's a number of different buses that use electric uh, buses to move around. So you have uh, electric lines going through some of the major streets, and the uh, buses have the pantograph that comes up and touches the electric lines and, charge and powers the bus to be able to go from place to place. And that's pretty cool. It's interesting that you have the uh, powered buses that way with the electrical systems. Not many cities do that. There are some, certainly, like San Francisco is another example of it. And you do see some cities in Europe that do that. But you don't see many in the U.S. that really use this system of having the overhead electric cables to move uh, buses from one point to another. 
I thought it was kind of cool that the city actually had the forethought to do some of this stuff. The other thing I noticed was the city uses a lot of hybrid buses. So the hybrid buses are able to run on electric power as well as diesel. Why this is important is because several of the uh, stations that they put in are actually underground. So the light rail pulls in there and then the bus pulls in right next to it. And by having a hybrid bus pull in, you don't have any pollution coming out, no exhaust coming from the bus, so it doesn't dirty it up and make it, the air essentially unbreathable underground. Now I realize there's a lot more to this and the politics of it and some of the things that happen and some of the, uh, I'll say, tree-hugger nature of uh, the people that live in the Pacific Northwest. Not that it's a bad thing. Now I don't want to delve into the politics of this on either side. It just turns out that it's a really good idea in terms of economies of scale and making sure that you have the right efficient vehicles to make things work. And it's really kind of cool that they've done this. So the, the busways and the, uh, and the trainways all share a roadway in these underground facilities. And it's pretty neat. So you, you're standing there waiting for your bus, and there's a train track, and there's a pantograph above. You know, there's the electric wires above that the, uh, the train can use. And then also there's the uh, hybrid buses that just pull right in on their electric power. So it's really pretty clever the way this works out. And I had this, like, notion in the back of my mind that I was feeling like, perhaps, that I was sort of in an Epcot that might exist in some other world. Right? It's not really what Disney had in mind for Epcot Center and what he was doing there, but it is sort of modeled in a similar way. Now, there is one other connection that I'd like to make to Disney that I wanted to share with you, and this is about the monorail system. Now, the city of Seattle has one of the only working monorails in the United States, other than at the Disney parks. Now, I know that there's one in Las Vegas. That's it. There are no other monorails that I'm aware of in the United States. And that monorail was built in 1961 uh, by the Alweg Company. And there's another connection to Disney in here. And this is where it was kind of fascinating to me when I st stood there and looked at it. Now, I had a chance to ride the monorail while I was there. While I was there. It goes from the um, Washington Street Station over to the Seattle Center. It's only a little over a mile journey. And it's really kind of cool. But there are two monorails running on that track, both of which were installed for the Century 21 Exposition back in 1962. But the connection to Disney goes deeper than that. See, there was a man whose name was um, Axel Leonard Wenner-Gren. He was a Swedish scientist and an industrial magnate who had this idea for creating a straddle-beamed system for moving transportation along that straddle beam. So instead of having a, a large flatbed track, you would have a single like beam that a car would move along. and It would keep it in place and make sure that it went along the track, and you could do it electrically and power it and do some things. Now, Axel had come to the attention of Disney in about 1953. He was working on this prototype for this thing, and Disney had heard about it, and he thought, wow, that's a really cool idea. Now, remember that he was planning the idea for something called Tomorrowland. It has Disneyland Park. Tomorrowland was supposed to look at all these innovative and inventive ideas of the future, things that you might think of, you know, only in your dreams, right? All these great ideas and supposed to be the future of transportation and the future of tomorrow and all these things that were going on. So when he heard about it, he contacted uh, Dr. Werner Gren's company, which was named Alweg. Alweg is an abbreviation and concatenation of the doctor's name. If you think about his name, it's just a concatenation of different parts of his name. So Alweg was this company that Disney reached out to and said, hey, we'd like to put an exposition on of your monorail in our Disneyland park to let people circle the park and look at it. And uh, Dr. Gren was uh, very excited about the idea, apparently, and uh, had an interest in, in getting into a deal. So they came up with an idea to license the concept to Disney. So he had an idea. He'd let Disney kind of run with it and build something and, and make something interesting. So Walt Disney and his uh, team went to the Standard Carriage Works uh, Company of East Los Angeles and uh, asked them to build uh, a prototype that would work in the, in the Disneyland park. And they wanted it for opening. Um, you know, it was about two years before opening. 
but that seemed a little bit unrealistic for uh, getting it to opening. So they said, okay, let's put it off and we'll have, uh, we'll do it in Tomorrowland a little bit later after park opening. So they had the standard carriage works company working on it and coming up with the prototypes, working with Alweg and coming up with the designs on how to make a monorail system. Well, time goes by and it's 1958 now, it's three years later. And it really wasn't getting done to Walt's satisfaction, not on the timelines they wanted. Yeah, you had a large delay in time because the uh, company was based out of Sweden, and here's Walt Disney in uh, California. So there's, you know, there's some time delays and some airmail things that had to go back and forth, and it wasn't really moving along very quickly. So, so Disney made the decision to pull it back and have some of his web designers actually do some of the design work. Now, Bob Gurr, who was the Disney guru at designing transportation things, was asked to work on the cars and come up with a concept for what was going on. Alweg already had sort of a prototype for a boxy type of car that could ride along the uh, monorail beams. And Bob Gurr came up with something that was a little more sophisticated and a little bit more um, glitzy and glamorous. You know, it had a little bit more oomph to it. It's more like what you know today. It was a uh, sleek train with a rocket ship nose and a stainless steel side panel and the fabulous bubble top that you see on the original monorails that, uh, that appeared at Disneyland. And that was the design that Bob came up with. Now, they came up with that, and it really was a departure from what Alweg was doing. They were working on a prototype that they were going to put into the uh, Century 21 exposition that was going to be over in uh, Seattle. And so uh, Disney had this other idea for something that was going to look completely different than the boxy design they had come up with. Basically the same functionality and basically the same uh, interior workings, but the external looked completely different. So Bob got to work on it and had the team working on it uh, to get everything together. And by July of 1959, they had designed up two trains, one that was blue, one that was red, and they called them Mark I trains uh, because it was the first mark that they had, had put together. Now, I think the word Mark is kind of lost to history. I suspect it was probably based on someone's name, or perhaps it was uh, because it was the first uh, service mark that they had put together, the first, the first marker that they had put together. But I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, there was a red and a blue one that they had uh, ready to put on the, on the trains, on the tracks. In the meantime, they had built the beams, they had put together all the, all the stanchions, and uh, put together everything that they wanted. So Walt Disney was already forward-thinking. By the time that it had come around to these trains being ready... Disney was already thinking about more than just a ride. Originally, it was just sort of a ride, but now he was thinking about his prototype community. And he had started to think about um, a revolutionary uh, way to uh, solve for urban mass transit. You could have this monorail beam that would allow you to move people from one place to another and uh, be able to do it quickly and efficiently. Uh, it would be quiet, it's electric, it's uh, energy efficient, and it would glide above the avenues where cars were moving. So it really had kind of a cool feel to it and looked really slick. So in early June, he had one monorail completed and it was ready to go. So on June 14, 1959, there was a ribbon-cutting ceremony that included the U.S. Vice President Richard M. Nixon and his family. And it was created as a rededication of Tomorrowland. So Disney had come up with a way to kind of reinvent Tomorrowland and he put the first train on there. And then a few months later, the next train was ready. So there was a red and a blue one running on the tracks. Now, Tomorrowland at Disneyland also included uh, the submarine voyage, the Matterhorn bobsleds, and the motorboat carriage as part of this newly expanded and revisited Tomorrowland. So this was when it became something really fantastic. He had a small Tomorrowland to begin with, and it became something much greater than that. 
So for a couple of years, it was really just a simple loop around, and you would get on at the same, get on and off at the same station, and it would just loop around uh, Tomorrowland and would show you around. But in 1961, Walt Disney expanded on the idea, and it became a transportation link. He expanded the length of the track to two and a half miles and uh, put another station at the Disneyland Hotel so guests could board the monorail at the hotel and begin their park visit into Tomorrowland. So they could actually go directly from the hotel to Tomorrowland and get off there. And Disneyland Park guests could exit the Disneyland Hotel to drink beverages at the monorail lounge that weren't readily available in the park. So it was a really clever way to keep moving people around and actually expand on his ideas for how you would create something of the 21st century and actually building on it. They also did something else. They added a fourth car to each of the trains to move more people. Originally, it was three cars and the, uh, and the uh, ends. And uh, eventually, they made a fourth car on it to make sure that it, uh, it grew into something bigger. And within a few years, they had redesigned the train to some degree and called it the Mark II monorail. And now there were three monorails, a red, a blue, and a yellow that were traveling on the tracks above Tomorrowland. Now, in 1968... Uh, there was another uh, enhancement that was made, and these were called the Mark III monorails. Again, another uh, redesign, some other changes that were made. And this was the last time that the Alweg name was included in the Alweg Disneyland monorail. And by now, Disney had kind of reinvented the entirety of the structure. So the, the engine and the components and some of the things that worked within the monorail were completely different than the original Alweg design. So they'd come up with something that was a little bit more clever and creative and done some things differently than they had originally done. And now the Mark III really was the departure point at which Disney had kind of owned the monorails themselves. So by the time that the Disney World Park opened in 1971... They needed another type of train, and these would be heavier trains with longer uh, sections in them, more ability to transport people around. It would have four stops, the Transportation and Ticket Center, the Polynesian Resort Hotel, the Magic Kingdom, and also the Contemporary Resort Hotel. So they needed a little bit more sturdy beam. They needed a little bit more robust engine. So the Mark IV monorails were introduced at Disney World when it opened in 1971, and they made their way to Disneyland as well around the, shortly after that. Then eventually in 1987, when uh, Disney World needed to expand its monorail fleet, they actually moved to the Mark V monorails. And those are the ones that stayed in service until fairly recently, the early 2000s, when they started switching over to the Mark VI's. And then Disneyland actually moved up to the Mark VII's, which are a slightly revised version of the original monorail, and it, it works that way. Now what, what's interesting here is, Disney, along the way, started to work with other companies. Uh, there was there were some relationships. Remember that Disney is all about the bottom line. There's a way to make money on the deal. There's a way to bring in a, additional funds to get things going. And one of those ways is to partner with outside companies. It's not always Disney's money they're playing with. They're actually working with other companies' money. So they went out and they uh, negotiated with the Bombardier Company out of Canada to do some of the design work, and they would get their name in the press as well. Uh, as a result of helping to build the monorail. So there was some quid pro quo things happening, some money changing hands, and some other activities that uh, that came along to make sure that uh, everyone uh, made something in the seal, and uh, Disney was able to produce these on a, on a broad scale. Now, on the monorail side, the uh, Alweg company was able to create and build the uh, monorail that still exists in the Seattle City Center, and uh, it goes between the city center and over to the, uh, as I said, the Washington Street uh, terminus. 
And so there's a cool way to kind of get back and forth on that little over a mile journey. It's really kind of fun, and I got to ride it, and I thought it was really cool. It was nice to see the original sort of prototype designs. You know, this is, this is pretty much as it was. These trains have not changed uh, in the years since uh, they were implemented in 1962. So it's really remarkable that they're still in service, they're still running. And it goes to show you, you know, with smaller number of people riding on it and less wear and tear, they're able to keep these, these fine machines just running and running. And if you ever get a chance to ride them, it really is sort of a trip back in time. You get that sense of history, and it really is pretty neat. It's a little pricey for what it is, but it's really pretty cool, and it's well worth seeing from the inside, from the outside, watching it slide by. If you're up in the Space Needle, you can see it down there. It's really, really cool. It's one of those things that you just should experience in life if you're a history buff and you like the monorail systems and so forth. I mean, I just enjoyed riding it. It was such a good time just taking the time to ride it and being able to experience it. Alweg went ahead and uh, had some other proposals they put out there. Uh, they wanted to get monorails into the common, pl- common places where you might expect uh, trains to run. And there was an agreement that they had sort of reached tentatively with the city of Los Angeles in 1963 to put together an entire uh, network of uh, monorail systems to ride around through the, uh, through the city of Los Angeles. But unfortunately, there was, a, uh, there was a, some dissension in the city. And while Alweg themselves were going to take all of the financial risks, the city decided instead to build a subway. And there were a number of people who were really kind of upset by this and put off by the whole situation. In fact, Ray Bradbury, the author, who you may remember as uh, somebody who was involved with Spaceship's Earth's design at uh, Epcot Center, uh, he was one of the leading opponents of the subway system. He thought the monorail should be the way of the future. And you can see the connection again back to the whole uh, Epcot sort of mindset here where we're thinking about how do we build to the future? How do we build some experimental prototype city of tomorrow? And part of that could be through a monorail system. And Ray Bradbury got it, and I think that's part of the reason he was involved with the Disney project along the way. But it's, it's really interesting to kind of think about this history and how everything kind of ties together. Now, the Hitachi company out of Japan also got involved in this deal along the way. And they bought up some of the Alweg designs and did some licensing agreements, and they created a, the Tokyo monorail that's based on that. So some of the uh, monorail systems that you see there are kind of uh, related to that. And the Bombardier Corporation had bought out many of the assets of the Alweg company, so that's part of the reason that they connect together. Now, there is an interesting side note here. You may have heard over the years that Disney won't consider uh, extending the monorail at Walt Disney World because it's too expensive, uh, that it costs too much to build the monorails. Now, it's interesting to note that we don't know how much it actually costs to build a monorail at Disney World, and we certainly don't know what Disney invested into Disneyland's monorail. But what we do know is that it cost about $3.5 million to build the monorail system between the uh, Seattle City Center and the Westlake uh, uh, Terminus. So there is, a, uh, there is sort of a standard there, and I think that's where most people get their numbers from that they think it's you know somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars a mile. Now that was three and a half million dollars but included stations on either end and some other things. So you have to wonder a little bit where that number comes from and how that develops. I don't know that it would cost that much. I don't know that it would, uh, that it would work out that way. And I don't know that it's a bad idea to invest in more things like that anyway. But it seems interesting to me that Disney hasn't really spent any time or money to investigate it or really invest in building new technologies. I mentioned on previous podcasts that one of the things that Disney does is they buy old city buses. Uh, buses come into use in a fleet in a city, and they, uh, they get used for some period of time, then the city will sell them off as uh, a scrap or surplus to other organizations. You know, Some of the larger cities sell to some of the smaller cities and so on. So buses get reused. 
Disney has a tendency to buy up old municipal buses that are old diesel buses and reuse them. And sometimes the buses break down because they're older models and sometimes there's other issues. They don't go out and buy new buses and they don't buy any hybrid buses and they don't buy any electric buses, certainly. And I just find that kind of interesting. They spend a lot of time and money investing into these older model buses, but don't think about the big picture of what to do with some of their new buses and how they, how they could keep the fleet running. And I just find that really kind of interesting that they don't spend the time or the effort to try to figure out how that really works and what to do about it. And it really, it, it just kind of boggles the mind a little bit. They won't spend the money to, to extend the monorail lines, but they also won't spend the money to buy buses that make sense in, you know, in more environmental senses and making sure that they don't break down. So I'm wondering at what point the whole system kind of falls apart for Disney or at what point they make a decision that they're going to invest in the, in the new um, innovations and some of the things that Walt Disney had in mind originally. I mean, if you think about his original concept of building something that was a uh, experimental prototype community of tomorrow that would include the best and the brightest and include some cool things, look at the people mover that still runs at Disney World. I know it doesn't exist at Disneyland anymore. And think about the fact that it's a fully electric car that moves continuously on a track. You could do something like that for probably less money than a monorail, and it would be a simpler uh, design, and perhaps you could serve some of the other outlying areas and get people back to monorails and so forth. It just, just a thought. It just kind of intrigues me that there's so many opportunities to do some things and really have them be cost-effective to get you from point A to point B and maybe do it a little bit better than some of the things that they've already thought of. And I just wonder, you know, at what point they make a decision, the company makes a decision to keep moving on and evolve the technology and take it further and do something else. Yes, they've invested a lot into the Fantasyland expansion, for example, or Cars Land or DCA or uh, over at the, uh, the FastPass Plus system and the whole Magic Bands and My Magic. They spent a lot of money on that, but I'm wondering where the return on investment is for that versus where it would be on moving, making sure that people can easily move around from point A to point B. If you're a captive audience waiting at a bus stop for 15 minutes, you're, you're not going to spend any money, certainly. If, you could get you some, if they could get you somewhere quickly and maybe put a few ads up along the way and maybe even use the My Magic to try to promote something, perhaps you create a happy customer and you could solve some other problems that way. Just my two cents. It's entirely up to them, of course, what they choose to do at this point, but just something that I noticed and I wanted to comment on. So there you go. I, was, uh, I had an interesting trip, had a really good time, got to kind of look at the city plans just a little bit and think about how things fit together, and it really kind of fascinated me, and I wanted to make sure that I made a podcast about it and noted it in some way. And before I leave you, one other observation I wanted to make. One of the things that I did while I was out in the Northwest was I went to visit Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier is a kind of a famous glacier and volcano all rolled into one uh, up in Washington State, and it's really a remarkable thing. And you go up to the visitor center, and there's no cell service. And when you're in the communities and towns that are around the base of the mountain, there's no cell service. And it's hard to get Wi-Fi. And it's really remarkable. So you disconnect from the world for a period of a couple of days. And there's something really cool about that. So two things I'd like to leave you with. One is we should all take the time to disconnect once in a while. Unplug your phone. Turn it off. Walk away. Turn off your internet. Just leave it alone for a little while, even if it's for a few hours. The other is visit a national park. National parks are wonderful treasures. They have nothing to do with Disney whatsoever, but they're really worth seeing and spending time at. Spending time walking around Mount Rainier just kind of gave me that brush with nature that sometimes you need to remind us about who we are as people and what we do. And it's well worth spending the time to do something like that if you ever get a chance to visit Mount Rainier. 
I highly recommend it. And take one of the guided tours by one of the park rangers. It really puts it in perspective and helps you to understand what it's all about. We have these great national treasures. I can't remember off the top of my head how many national parks we have in this country, but there are a fair number. And they're all fascinating and interesting, and they're all worth visiting and seeing. Take the time to think about them, to visit them, to experience them yourself. It's well worth any time you can spend there. And that's just a couple of words I wanted to share with you about my experiences. And I, I hope that it kind of gives you a little impetus to go out and try it and check it out. It's, it's just phenomenal. It's kind of like one of these moving events in your life that you just kind of stop and think about. The sheer scope of nature and what nature has to present to you. It's well worth spending some time to get to know it. So that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. Show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. 